All right. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, we have a very special guest. He comes to us from the UK. His name is Ross King, and he just published an excellent book. I highly recommend. Published it on April 2021. The title of the book is The Bookseller of Florence, the story of the manuscripts that illuminated the Renaissance. And this is not his first book. He's also written other titles. Uh, one is Michelangelo and the Pope's Ceiling from 2002, The Judgment of Paris, the revolutionary decade that gave the world Impressionism, 2006. That was a Governor General's Ward book. Also, Leonardo and the Last Supper. Also, Brunelleschi's Dome, How a Renaissance Genius Reinvented Architecture, 2013. Mad Enchantment, Claude Monet and the Painting of the Water Lilies from 2017. He's also published two novels, Domino and Ex Libris, as well as a bi biography of Niccolo Machiavelli, titled Machiavelli, Philosopher of Power, and also a collection of Leonardo da Vinci's Fables, Jokes, and Riddles. He's also the co-author with Anya Grieb of Florence, The Paintings and Frescoes, 1250 to 1743 from 2015. It's uh, the most comprehensive book ever undertaken on the art of Florence. And his website is rosskingbooks.com. Again, www.rosskingbooks, all one word. He also has a YouTube channel titled Renaissance Discoveries. But uh, in the intro to this book is a, a quote that I think is very fitting that covers the, the contents of the book. And that quote is, all evil is born from ignorance, yet writers have illuminated the world, chasing away the darkness by Vespasiano da Pasticci, who is really the central character of this book. So Mr. Ross, or Mr. King, can you talk about uh, your background? I mean, you have a very lengthy background. A lot of stuff focuses on Florence, but what led you to write this book, The Bookseller of Florence? Well, this is a kind of story I'd wanted to tell for a long time because I've, I've written about Florence previously. I've written about Brunelleschi uh, and the uh, building of the Dome in Florence. I've written about Leonardo da Vinci. I've written about Michelangelo. So I've written about great Florentines, but always people who worked in what we could say is visual culture, in monuments that stand up or that are on uh, on the wall of a chapel, for example, or on the vault of a chapel. But I, every time I've written about Florence, I've been aware that besides being famous for images, uh, Florence was famous in the 15th century for words, uh, for the written word, and for the rediscovery of the written word. In fact, if we could go back to uh, Florence in, or go back to Europe, anywhere in Europe, in say the year 1460 or 1470, the, the name Florence, uh, the word Florence, wouldn't necessarily conjure artists for the average man in the street. It probably would have conjured philosophers and scholars because Florence was really a place filled with what we might call public intellectuals, people who uh, didn't necessarily teach in universities. They weren't professors at the Sorbonne in Paris, for example, or the University of Bologna. They were people who were active public citizens in Florence. Some of them were elected or appointed officials. And crucially, uh, they were fluent in Latin and many of them in Greek, which made them au fait with ancient literature, uh, with the writings of the ancient Greeks and Romans. And the Florentines are the ones who recovered these writings, or at least if, if you were lucky enough or uh, uh, if you were assiduous enough to be able to find an, an ancient manuscript uh, written uh, by an ancient Roman, uh, which had somehow survived the centuries and was now 
in a northern France library or library in Germany, um, what uh, you would do with it would be to take it to Florence because that's where you would be paid for it and that's where people would pay attention to it because of the fact that uh, as, I mean, you read that quote from Vespasiano William and, and that's what they genuinely believed that writers uh, could illuminate the world and that they could make a better society. They could educate their children better. They could rule themselves better politically and conduct more judicious wars if they simply had the knowledge that writers in general and ancient writers in particular had left to the world, but which sadly had been lost for centuries. And so really that's the story I wanted to tell. And it's a big story and so I had to find the guy who could draw all of this together. And fortunately, I found him in Vespasiano, who is the bookseller who becomes the, uh, I guess, the, the nexus for all of this intellectual exchange and the one who disseminates this knowledge all around Europe in the course of the 1400s. Yeah, and he was a remarkable figure. And you talk about the street of the booksellers. And so Vespasiano, he started very early and had very incredible contacts. I found that really surprising about his life. But can you talk about what the life of a bookmaker was, not just a bookseller, but a bookmaker at that time in the 15th century in Florence? Sure, sure. A, a bookseller was a bookmaker. Uh, uh, Vespasiano, as a bookseller, he had a shop. Uh, the building still exists today. It's next to the Bargello in Florence, which uh, some people might know from, you know, if you've been to Florence, in all likelihood, you've been to the Bargello, the great sculpture museum. His shop was right across the street from it, just to the north of it. Um, and he had two rooms. Um, and you would go in the front door and you would see the manuscripts on display. And you could actually sit down and read one of them. Um, and uh, although it really was lacking is, was the coffee shop or something like that, what we have in bookstores today. But then in the back room, there was the, the sort of business end of it where the manuscripts were put together because we're talking a, a, a about a time in the 1430s when Vespasiano began work and in the 1440s when he really began rising to prominence. We're talking about a time before the printing press, which was only perfected in the middle of the 1450s. And so with Vespasiano, we're talking about handwritten and often hand illuminated manuscripts written for the most part on parchment, in other words, animal skin. And so these were put together in the back room. Uh, so as you walked in, you cam came into his bookshop and you probably would have heard sounds that we would find unaccustomed. Uh, we would be unaccustomed to walk into a bookshop. We'd hear saws, we'd hear hammers, and we might hear someone crying out in pain because he stabbed his thumb with a needle as he was stitching parchment pages together in a book. Um, and so it was a kind of cross between a workshop, any artisanal workshop, like a, a shoemaker or a slipper maker, who uh, was one of Vespasiano's neighbors in the street, um, a cross between that kind of place where a product, a particular product is made, um, and a place of intellectual exchange. Because that front room you not only bought books and got your wisdom that way, but you could listen to the conversations that took place because Vespasiano's bookstore became a kind of, I guess we could say a debating society or a forum for any intellectual luminaries who were in Florence or who from anywhere in Europe who came to Florence 
for them to gather together and uh, and and discuss either political matters or more likely philosophical matters, whether Cicero was right when he said this particular thing or whether um, Livy's in his history of Rome uh, was uh, whether Livy gave a better history of Rome than someone else. And so you had all of this in the bookshop. It was a sort of cross of many things, a university, a workshop, a library, a, a reading room, uh, a debating society. And so it was, uh, uh, and it was probably the most famous shop in Florence from, say, the 1440s until Vespasiano finally gave it up in the early 1480s. Right. And so at that time, like, like you say, you stress that artisanal quality of the books and these skins had to be individually prepared and very specially treated. And I think you made an interesting comment in there, like they wanted to wait till Easter where everybody had lamps. So the book, uh, the bookmakers could have access to these skins and treatments. So you see how expensive it was and how time consuming it was to make one book. And so at that time, can you talk about what was how much was missing at that time, we might take it for granted, some of the books we have today, but at the time of Espasiano, there was definitely a paucity of books and libraries. Can you talk about that? That's absolutely right. It, I mean, we take knowledge for granted because we can get information that we want in a matter of seconds. Uh, and it, whether it's a book, you know, you can download a Kindle um, in seconds. Uh, and so we're, we take this for granted and we forget that there was a time or, or perhaps we don't really realize how bad things were in the early 1400s. The and, and I'll give you an illustration which shows us just the, the paucity of knowledge, which you rightly point out. Um, the greatest private collection of books, and again, we're talking about handwritten manuscripts, the greatest single private collection of handwritten manuscripts in Europe up to the 1430s and 1440s was that of a, a Florentine, someone who became a good friend and supporter of Vespasiano, named Niccolo Niccoli. And uh, he had, and when I say it was the greatest private collection, you're probably thinking of thousands of books, maybe even tens of thousands of books. In fact, uh, he owned 800. And that was the maximum amount, really, that was possible to own at that time. Nicoli was very wealthy, relatively wealthy, and he spent all of his money on books and was always trying to get more of them. Uh, and the problem was there simply were not enough. Um, and if you wanted a copy of, uh, for example, Pliny the Elder's Natural History, probably one of the most famous and popular books from ancient Rome. Pliny was the guy who died in the explosion of Vesuvius in 79 AD. Um, and this was a huge book, very popular. In Florence, a scholar in the 1450s and 1460s wanted to do a new edition of it. And so he tried to find every single copy of it that he could find, and he could get only a small handful of them. Um, and so the, the knowledge was scarce. Knowledge Books were extremely thin on the ground at this particular point. Um, and so this is the gap into which someone like Vespasiano is trying to step. Um, he's trying to make it possible for you, uh, you know, if you want a copy of Cicero's, Cicero's work on rhetoric, Vespasiano will make it so that you can get one. Or if you want to Pliny the Elder, um, he will get one for you. He'll create one in his back room with his scribes, with his illuminators, and with the, the out of the parchment that 
as you described, he got from the guys down the street who scraped the the skin of the goat or the skin of the uh, the sheep in order to make the parchment from it. And so you had this, and he had all of these benefactors or wealthy people. I mean, at the start, can you talk about how that, how their interest in this? I mean, you call it the Renacita is a word that I hadn't used before, the Italian word like rebirth. Can you talk about how these wealthy people, this was an aspect of uh, their prominence is to have these libraries and to to read that that those old manuscripts? Sure. It Well, in the first place, in some ways, it's a mystery how exactly uh, Vespasiano rose up so quickly because, he, as you pointed out, he started young. He went to work at the age of 11. So he had what might have seemed like a very poor or very limited education. And at the age of 11, he went into the bookshop with this guy named Michele Guarducci, uh, the one next to the Bargello that he eventually would take over. But clearly he impressed people with his knowledge and with his willingness to learn. Flor one of the things that makes Florence special, I think, in the 1400s is that um, it was a, a sort of a case of cometh the hour, cometh the man, or cometh the man, cometh the hour. And uh, you you get these discoveries of people who maybe in another city would not have had the freedom and chance to do what they did. And so Vespasiano steps, he comes to the right place at the right time. It's Florence, it's early 1434. He's 11 years old and he gets a job in a bookshop and very quickly is talent spotted. The Florentines seem to have a good nose for talent. And once they saw it, they promoted it. And so people like Niccolo Niccoli, this great manuscript collector, really be, even though Niccoli was in his 60s at this point, really became a kind of benefactor of him. And I think gave him access to his books or as Vespasiano says, he got access to Nicoli's books when he was allowed to read them and sort of self-educate. And he also had the benefit of all of the discussions taking place in Florence. So he rose up very quickly uh, to, uh, I guess, rather grand intellectual heights as well as commercial heights um, and began, and speaking of the commercial heights, he then began dealing with the people that uh, you mentioned, William, these very powerful, wealthy and powerful people around Italy, and in fact, beyond the Italian borders into Northern Europe, to England, places like that, where these patrons buy books from him, or they know that if they want a book, the place to go for it is Vespasiano da Bisticci in Florence. And so they send their agents there or sometimes go themselves. And so there are people such as three generations of the Medici family in Florence, Cosimo, the, the sort of founder of the uh, political dynasty, who becomes a, a benefactor of him, uh, has him do a lot of work for him, and then becomes very close friends with him. And then he works for Piero and Giovanni de' Medici, the sons of Cosimo, and even greater book collectors than Cosimo. And then, of course, for the son of Piero de' Medici and the grandson of Cosimo, Lorenzo the Magnificent, and he works for him. But he also worked for three generations of the kings of Naples. He worked for Pope Nicholas V, who, as Tommaso Parentucelli, before he became, before he got himself elected pope, uh, was one of his best friends. Um, and so he had all of these very powerful supporters, uh, very wealthy, uh, and often, and if, uh, this is one thing I'll say about them, because one of the interesting things, uh, one of the things I enjoyed writing about, I have to say, from the distance, the safe distance of 400 or 600 years, is what exactly these guys were like, uh, many of them, uh, they, the kings of Naples, for example, or 
Federigo de Montefeltro, who was perhaps his best client of all, the Duke of Urbino. And they conform to the kind of typical Renaissance type, which is uh, someone who is extremely refined culturally, who's fluent in Latin and who loves reading ancient literature, loves reading about ancient battles and ancient philosophy. And yet, along with that refinement, has a streak of absolutely murderous savagery, uh, because there is no way of tiptoeing around the fact that Vespasiano's clients were <laughs> were some of the wealthiest and most powerful, and yet also um, the, the most, some of the most reprehensible people um, in Europe at that time. Um, and in many cases, they were trying to kill each other on the battlefield or through assassinations. And so the, for me, all of this was interesting, of course, because I, the Vespasiano was the, the glue that holds these larger-than-life characters together and who has to tiptoe in between their very, the various factions and, uh, and the war, literally warring factions that are in within Florence itself and also outside of the walls of Florence in Italy more generally. Uh, so that... Well but it, there was also things outside of not just Florence. I mean, there's so many incredible events happening even outside of Italy. Can you talk about the Council of Florence and what was happening in Constantinople and how that influenced uh, Vespasiano? Sure. It, uh, in some ways, the Council of Florence was maybe a moment that made his career because it was absolutely vital uh, uh, for him. Again, he was in the right place at the right time. It was 1439. And the Greek East, the, so the Orthodox Church, as we call it today, the, the Russians and the Greeks in Constantinople, for example, uh, have, been, have been split off for centuries from the Latin West, i.e. the Roman Catholic Church, a division that, of course, still exists today. But they wanted to come together. These, the, the, the Latin West and the Greek East wanted to come together, not least so that the Greek East would be protected by the Christian princes in the West from the Ottoman Turks who were, were increasingly surrounding them. In fact, you know, ever since thir 13, the 1390s, they've been threatening Constantinople itself, which is, of course, the capital of the Roman Empire in the East. Um, and so it was believed that if we have a kind of religious concord, there will be a political agreement uh, and we can go and fight off the Ottoman Turks and save Constantinople and the Greek East. Um, and so what appeared to happen is that they um, made that work. Uh, there was a council in Florence, uh, which came to Florence in the early spring of 1439, uh, when Vespasiano was an adolescent. He was probably about 17 at that time, working in the bookshop. And he crucially got to know a number of the participants um, and was witness to the various debates. Um, and because, of course, what happened then is you had the greatest ecclesiastical minds in the East and West coming together in Florence and debating, uh, for example, the authenticity of certain manuscripts, looking at them, what we today would call philologically, looking at the historical context of them and which manuscript was older than the other, which had more authority, which was closer to the truth of God. Uh, and so Vespasiano was witness to all of these debates, um, and he would have met, it seems, some of these great Greek scholars um, who came to Florence. Um, the upshot of that, of course, was that they had, they, a bit like the Treaty of Versailles, something was signed but not really put into practice. It was never 
ratified in uh, by in Moscow or in Constantinople. And of course, what happened in 1453, so 14 years later, is that uh, Mehmed the Conqueror and his Janissaries take, uh, they conquer Constantinople um, and the Greek East, the capital of the Greek East then falls to the Ottoman Turks. Um, and from that point uh, onwards, uh, including to today, it is an Islamic, um, an Islamic city within the large Islamic enclave. Um, and that then again had repercussions for learning in the West because of the fact there was a diaspora of Greek scholars. A lot of Greek scholars had already left the East and come to places like Florence to teach. Um, and uh, But the last of them uh, effectively fled at that point, in some cases bringing with them manuscripts that had not been seen previously. Although I should say for the most part, the Greek manuscripts that, for example, the complete works of Plato, things such as that all had arrived in the West by that point. Uh, but this was seen as cataclysmic in a city like Florence where the fall of Constantinople was called the fall of Greece because they felt that the ancient Greek world of you know, everyone from Homer to Plato and Aristotle onward to the glories of the Roman Empire because Constantinople was until its fall in 1453, still nominally the capital of the Roman Empire in the East. All of this was a was hugely catastrophic um, as far as the people in the West were concerned. Um, and But Florence was the beneficiary of it because of the fact that um, they you know, harvested a number of the great scholars who fled uh, Mehmed and his soldiers at that point. Right. So there was always that kind of tension about what was happening there, uh, it seemed like, through Florence. And then how did how did Vespasiano kind of make his way after the fall of Constantinople and, and kind of uh, expand the creation of manuscripts? Can you talk about that or some of the complexities involved in that? Sure. It um, Well, what really makes things complicated for him is what happens about 18 months after uh, the fall of Constantinople, because we have in the 1450s two earth-shattering events, one that is uh, has immediate consequences and terrifies everyone in the West as soon as it happens. The other one that happens 18 months later uh, is noticed by a few people, but doesn't really happen that dramatically. And that is, of course, or it doesn't have dramatic effects immediately. And that's the invention of the printing press uh, by Johannes Gutenberg on the banks of the Rhine in Mainz. Uh, uh, he perfected the technique by 1454 uh, when he did his 42-line Bible. And that really then begins to change how knowledge is produced and disseminated. And it presented a huge challenge for Vespasiano because of the fact that um, he refused to embrace that technology. He said that the print, a printed book would be ashamed to sit next to or in a collection of the ones that he produced. And that may well have been true in most cases. Printed books were not as beautiful um, as his works, although you could argue that the Gutenberg Bible certainly was as beautiful. Um, and, uh, and so he simply refused to embrace it. But one of the things I'll say about the printing press is too often we do look at it as a huge shockwave that reverberates across Europe. But in fact, it had a very, very slow, there was almost a gestational period for two decades because Gutenberg, for obvious reasons, did not want 
the secret of the printing press to get out, and he didn't want everyone to be able to do what he was capable of doing. Um, and so the knowledge spread very slowly, and it wasn't until 1465 or 66 that the first book was printed in Italy, and then there was only one printer who happened to be German or a pair of Germans. And it wasn't really then until the 1470s, the latter half of the 1470s, that the printing press began to challenge Vespasiano, and in fact, anyone who was producing manuscripts, because people finally figured out how to make the printing press work commercially. Uh, Vespasiano could make his business work because you would come to him and ask him for a manuscript and he would produce it and it'd be like any other product that you bought. But with the printing press, a third party has to come in between the buyer and the producer, and that's the capitalist, someone with the startup funds to give to the printer so he or she, because there were some female printers at this time, could finance what they were doing. And so there is a shift in the way knowledge is produced, but it's not immediate, and it's really the work of decades rather than a couple of weeks or a couple of months. And so, so then you have this kind of thing. I mean, he was kind of right there at the right time, right there at the creation of the manuscripts. So Gutenberg, can you talk about how people, I mean, you talk about some of these characters from England and Hungary and how they came to Florence to get their manuscripts. They were trying, so this whole kind of cultural foment, foment was taking place. Can you talk about the influences of the Florentine manuscripts all over the world or how they got distributed? Sure. You're right that people, uh, people you know, probably the greatest uh, literary figure uh, of Hungary in uh, the 1400s was a guy named Janus Pannonius, and he became a very good friend of Vespasiano. And as soon as he came to, he had a huge reputation as a poet and scholar. And Vespasiano said he was the greatest classical scholar in Italy at that time. And when Pannonius came to Florence, knowing that this is where he had to come to get the books that he wanted, um, he went straight to Vespasiano's shop because um, he knew, A, that he could get the books there, or at least order them, um, and B, that Vespasiano could introduce him to everyone. Um, and that we see this happening repeatedly in the 1400s. In some cases, we just have Vespasiano's word for it. He says about how all these people beat a track to his door, but other people do confirm this. Anyone who coming to Florence often made their way, first of all, to his shop, so they could, he would could effect an introduction for you, um, as well as as giving you books. So, yes, what he was doing then uh, was spreading what we would call the ideas of the Renaissance. So he was part of what we today would call a humanist project of spreading the wisdom of ancient Greece and Rome across uh, across borders and across the centuries. Uh, just to give one example. Uh, probably the greatest intellectual feat of the 1400s took place in Florence, and that was the rediscovery and then ultimately the dissemination uh, through its translation of the complete works of Plato. And it seems strange to us that there was a time when Plato was virtually unknown in the West, but if we went back to the year 1400 or 1396, to be more precise, almost no one knew about Plato. Um, no one had read The Republic. Most people, most educated people probably had not even heard of it. Uh, but what the Florentines became determined to do, and Cosimo de' Medici played a huge role in this, was to recover the wisdom of Plato. 
because they knew about Plato through Aristotle, whose works they did have, and other writers who deferred to Plato. So they knew he was a great thinker, but they knew almost nothing of what he said firsthand. They just had four of his 36 dialogues, um, and they were translated. Two of them were fragmentary, and all four of them were translated very badly a couple of centuries earlier from Greek into Latin, and the Latin was very poor, and it was everyone knew that these were not good translations. So the Florentines recovered, um, it, and this happened at the Council of Florence, um, a Greek manuscript of the complete works of Plato came into the hands of Cosimo de' Medici, and then he found a translator for it, a man named Marsilio Ficino. And in many ways, the rest becomes history because uh, Ficino then presents Plato to the world. And one of the first people to make a copy of Ficino's translation was Vespasiano, um, who made one for the greatest library in Italy at that time, which was the library in Urbino, uh, which was ruled by Federigo de Montefeltro, this uh, war sort of captain, this warrior who was also, as I said, a great scholar. I mean, so Vespasiano played his part in disseminating the wisdom of Plato. It's actually pretty fascinating because you show in the book these guys like Cosimo and uh, Monteforte or whatever his name, their people are reading them the books. So there's like a guy, I think that you mentioned that Medici had a guy he paid to just read him books while he was not feeling well. They were all ill all the time. Yeah, pretty fascinating. That, that's right. Um, with with uh, Federico de Montefeltro, he had five people at his court whose sole job was to read aloud to him. So he could go about his business. He could be on horseback. Um, he could be on his tent the night before a battle. And he had people who, in a kind of relay, read works to him, read him the works from Livy's History of Rome, for example, to inspire him to great heroics on the battlefield on the following day or to explain Roman military strategy to him. Uh, so, yes, I mean, one of the great... I've talked about the... Uh, and you mentioned the paucity of books at this time, but we uh, one, one of the rewarding things about looking at these people is their hunger for knowledge. They were desperate to find uh, these works. And if they caught wind of the possibility of a book, one of these long lost works that they wanted, something like Cicero on the Republic, a work that they knew had existed, but no one had seen for probably a thousand years. If they heard about a book like this, they would spare no expense. They would send these manuscript hunters to ransack the library um, and try to find it and bring it back. And if it was brought back, if it was saved, they... Um, you know, it was saved for all time because the Florentines then made multiple copies of it. And so they're responsible for not just for Plato, for recovering Plato for us, but uh, for recovering a lot of writers such as Quintilian, Lucretius, and so forth. People who may well have been completely, you know, who, who had dropped off the radar of history until it was they were brought back on uh, by the Florentine manuscript hunters and their patrons, people like Cosimo and Vespasiano. Yeah, I was surprised that so many manuscripts were outside of Italy. You mentioned France, Germany, Switzerland. This guy Poggio uh, found Quintilian's Instituto Oratoria. So they're finding these things and really, sa really salvaging the history, real history that... And People take for granted, or I do at least. Yeah, yeah, and it's—I mean—it's interesting how that happened because we might think today that if you were looking for the works of the ancient Romans for the poetry of Virgil or the 
uh, the political writings or the rhetorical writings of Cicero or Quintilian, um, guys who lived in ancient Rome. You're going to find these in Rome somewhere, or at least somewhere in Italy. But in fact, uh, everything that had existed in Italy probably had been mostly found by that point, but they still had these huge gaps. And the reason um, it moved elsewhere is because of the Lombard invasions of Italy that began in the at the end of the sixth century. And the Lombards were the last of the barbarians, but they were the ones who stayed in Italy. They didn't just invade and retreat, they stayed. And as scholars of the day wrote, scholars of the, let's say the seventh century, all knowledge fled Italy, they said. Um, and of course, learned men left with their manuscripts and they went to places like Ireland, uh, the north of England, uh, Scotland, uh, the island of Lindisfarne um, off the, the east coast of England. And then from there, these Anglo-Saxons and Irish scribes and missionaries and scholars went, say, in the 700s and 800s AD to northern France and Germany to, as they put it, to convert the barbarians, because, of course, these were the Goths and they um, had recently been Christianized. And so the Anglo-Saxons and people like that, people like Willebrod uh, went, or St. Columban went to uh, northern France and Germany, and and they founded libraries there. And that's why you find, uh, you know, these great finds of the 1300s and 1400s are made in monastery libraries, often founded by people like Willebrod or St. Columban or their followers. Um, and so it's a um, one of the great pleasures of writing the book was just, just describing that flow of knowledge, uh, you know, the, which begins in Italy and then flows across the Alps, across the Channel, and then comes back and sort of comes ricocheting back finally to Italy in the 1400s. And you realize just the uh, the uh, the happenstance and the uh, the imperiled nature of learning, the fact that it hung so often by such a slender thread. Um, and you have to admire these heroic Indiana Jones type figures who go out um, and cross the Alps and, and try to treat with the monks, deal with the monks and say, let us into your library. And can I copy this manuscript, please? Um, and finally give us back someone who otherwise would have been completely lost to history. Because of course, many of the books they found were hundreds of years old and were on the point of perishing by the time they were by the time Poggio Bracciolini or people like that discovered them. And that's true. I mean, some some historians are lost to history. I was looking through Eusebius the other day and the early church histories are extant, but some of his other writings are gone and they've been lost either through the sack of Constantinople or stuff like that, or events, the burning down of the Library of Alexandria. But you show in your book, these books that have been recovered and, and restored by the bookseller Florence are in the hands of Christopher Columbus and some of these other people that you can see this heritage has been expanded. And you also say Vespasiano, he wrote his own, was rediscovered, right? The lives of 103 illustrious men too, right? That, that's right. I mean, there's this wonderful, I'm not sure if we'd call it an irony or a kind of circularity to history that uh, he, uh, after he retired from running his bookshop and decided he decided he'd become a writer, uh, and it's very fortunate that he did because he wrote his effectively his memoirs, um, which uh, in which he describes all the famous people he knew, and they're very gossipy. And he tells us about his private audiences with Pope Nicholas V and his time uh, with Cosimo de' Medici when Cosimo was at his farm in the country and things like that. So we get these insights into 
all of these people that Vespasiano knew very intimately. And so we get this color that history otherwise might not give us. Uh, but it also then gives us Vespasiano uh, because we're, I was able to reconstruct much of his life through what he writes about the other people, what he knew about them. Um, and so, uh, it, it, but the, the irony is that because he did not accept the printing press, he did not have his memoirs published. He had them handwritten. There were probably five or six copies of them made in total. And these were then dispersed. And fortunately, one of them uh, was fought, discovered in the Vatican Library in the early 19th century by a man named Angelo Mai, who ultimately became, he was a cardinal, but ultimately he became the uh, Vatican librarian, the, uh, in charge of the Vatican Library. And he was the one who discovered it. Um, and no one had read these works for centuries. Um, and it was a, a revelation to people who read them in the middle of the, the, the 1800s, because suddenly they had an insight into the intellectual life of Florence especially, and then more it, more generally Italy in the course of the 1400s. Um, and so Vespasiano uh, really began coming back to history at that point. So, <laughs> excuse me, the person who, who recovered history uh, played such a big part in recovering history himself, then had to be rescued from obscurity um, uh, in uh, several centuries after his death. But it's interesting that you, you mentioned the Vatican Library because Vespasiano is really there at the German, the very beginnings of that, of reestablishing what today is known as really one of the great libraries that people don't have some, have some access to, but really one of the great repositories of knowledge. I mean, this guy's right there at the beginning. Uh, Absolutely. Really and, and his family, too, I think they were better. I think you mentioned in your book they were buried or the family burial is at the church of Santa Croce, I think is how it's pronounced. That's right. So he's there yeah. with Machiavelli, I think. And Galileo, so they were prominent enough to. I don't know. I've never seen. I've been in that church, but I've never didn't. Don't remember their burial plot. Are you aware of it? If it's visible or not? Uh, yeah, it is visible. Him? And but oh, sadly, okay. you don't see his name. Um, he doesn't have a monument in the way that Machiavelli does, the way that Michelangelo does. His is very uh, prominent. Or Galileo uh, across the aisle from them. Um, it's a, 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 you know, Santa Croce is the pantheon of uh, the Florentine greats. And so it's fitting that Vespasiano is there. Uh, but where what he has, you have to look down, you have to look on the floor as you walk down the center of the aisle. And so it is a good for a plot in the floor of the church. It's a good spot. It's right in the center. But everyone who comes in walks over him without really noticing he's there. Um, and I said his name isn't on it, but the name on it is that of his brother, um, Jacopo da Bestici, who was a famous doctor. Um, and he made, Jacopo made more money doctoring. Uh, he was probably the greatest physician of his time. So you have, it's a remarkable family. You have this wonderful, this great doctor on the one hand, and then this great scholar and bookseller on the other. Uh, and But Jacopo died first and he bought this plot uh, in the center, as I say, very good real estate. Um, in the center of Santa Croce and had his name engraved on the tomb slab. And then years later, when Vespasiano died, he lived until uh, 1498, Vespasiano then was placed into the tomb with his brother, but his name does not appear on it. If you're very sharp-eyed and you know where to look, um, there is on the wall across from it, uh, the wall of the church itself, 
uh, you can see uh, a, a plaque that was put up 100 years ago, put up in 1898 on the whatever it would have been the 400th anniversary of his death um, to commemorate him. And so it's fitting that he is in the pantheon of Florentine greats in Santa Croce because um, in his own time, he was recognized every bit as much as a Galileo was in his time or uh, Leonardo Bruni, another of the great Florentines who's buried there, or Machiavelli. He was certainly on a par with all of them and had the same sort of uh, colossal European reputation. Yeah, colossal impact of somebody less known. Hopefully this book will bring him back to give him kind of a renaissance of understanding. But we're at about 40 minutes here, Ross. Is there anything you'd like to add before we wrap up? Anything I missed? Um, I don't think so. I think we've covered uh, covered a lot of bases. It um, The book was meant to be panoramic, uh, that I wanted to sort of... Uh, it co most of my books cover maybe 8, 10, 12 years in the life of an artist. And in this one... Um, I, you know, it, it's sort of a biography of sorts of Vespasiano, but it, it's meant to be more than that also. It's a history of Florence in what Vespasiano himself called its golden age, the period running from the 1430s to the 1490s. So I really take, it, it's a history of Florence from Cosmo de Medici until Girolamo Savonarola, uh, the Dominican friar who takes over Florence towards the end of the century. And so I, 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 uh, you know, to go back to what I was saying at first, I wanted to tell the story, a big story about Florence and its place in intellectual history, and also show the way in which history impacted on Florence and its people. And I wanted to find the guy who would help me do this. Unfortunately, it turned out to be Vespasiano, who's interesting in himself, but also serves this wonderful plot device for me of introducing all of the people that he knew um, and was friends with and worked for. And so I'm able to give a kind of group portrait and and hopefully a panorama of, uh, of Florence, uh, of Europe in this exciting 15th century, which is this time of discovery and rediscovery. Yeah, it's a terrific book. I really highly recommend this. And I think you really succeeded in seeing that panoramic, panoramic view of Europe at that time and Florence as well. Where's the best place to buy it? Is it Amazon or is it on your website, rosskingbooks.com? Um, I don't sell it from the website, but you can get it um, uh, from uh, Amazon. You can get it from your local bookstore, especially a good independent bookstore. Uh, they're, uh, they've been very supportive of me, um, you know, both with this book um, and in the past. So uh, Amazon's great. I love it. I order all the, the things from it all the time, but don't forget uh, that... Uh, there's nothing quite like a bookshop. And Vespasiano is uh, one, one of the things this, the book allowed me to do is give a, a love letter to Florence and a love letter to booksellers. Um, yeah. And so, yes, pop out to your local independent and, uh, and tell them to uh, find Ross King's Bookseller of Florence for you. Awesome. And again, the title of the book is The Bookseller of Florence, The Study of the Manuscripts that Illuminated the Renaissance by Ross King, published April 2021. Ross King, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you.